be reading this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first eight verses. <clears throat> first of all then, <clears throat> I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Thank you, Steve. It's the first Sunday of the month, and so we're preaching through the prayer passage that we'll be praying together as a body this month, and afterward we'll be taking the Lord's table. So let's pray, let's bow for prayer, and ask that God would bless this passage in prayer. Father, give us grace to know your mind, to know exactly what you're trying to tell us from this passage. I know that we can't explore all of its depth and nuance. We won't even scratch the surface today. But I pray that this prayer would serve as a pattern, or this command to pray, would serve as a pattern for us this month, and I ask that our people would pray as we're instructed to here in 1 Timothy 2. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, I've got a question for you. I want you to think back to the last time that you were doing something naughty. And maybe you will have to reach far back into the distances of your memory because it will be hard to remember the last time you did something naughty and for some of you, it may have just been this morning, but just think back to the last time. Let us pretend for a moment that while you were doing that naughty thing, your parent saw you doing that naughty thing, and they said, hey, stop that. Now, children, how many of you in that moment, when your parent said, stop doing that naughty thing, immediately pointed to your sibling and said, what about them? How many of you have done that? Some of you have done that. Parents, how many of your children have done that? Okay, okay, I see unanimous agreement from the parents. Children, sometimes when we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, and the Lord comes and puts his finger on our hearts, the first thing that we do is we start pointing the finger at other people. Now, children, I want you to know something. Did you know that your parents will sometimes do the same thing? We do it, we parents do it in a little bit more grown-up of a way, though. We'll entertain, entertain ourselves by watching too much Fox News. Or we'll entertain ourselves by reading 
news articles that make people different from us, people, sometimes godless people, look ridiculous. And we look at that, and instead of grieving over their souls, instead of thinking about what's going on with the sort of end times, these are souls that need saving perspective. Like our children, we puff ourselves up and, or worse, like the Pharisee points to the publican and says, I'm glad I'm not like him. There is so much in our world that's aimed at Christian types of people, but that appeal to them in a wholly unchristian way. And this isn't anything new. There was a great Puritan, and he said this. He said, don't, don't read newspapers. He was talking about these little pamphlets or newspapers. He says, don't read them. Because they make sin to look ridiculous. When what we need to do is make sin to look odious. This is, in a sense, what Paul is getting after here when he tells us that we need to be praying for all men, for kings, for people in high positions. Why is that? He prays that with a purpose. So that we'll have an end in mind of what we're to be praying for, and not just for these sort of ridiculous things that get our dander up, make us mad, make us motivated to keep doing or watching whatever we were doing or watching. Paul is trying to get us beyond that and start looking to God who desires to see all people saved. Okay, Let's jump into our passage today. Like I said before, we don't have any hope of covering all the nuances of this passage. It's a very deep passage. It's one of those rich Pauline passages that sort of piles terms upon terms. It's very tightly argued. And if we tried to get into all the nuances of it, we would be here for quite a long time. And so, what I, really wanna, what I really wanna do is stick to three points. We'll have three main slides and then some applications at the end for our praying for this month. And so the first thing that I want you to see from this prayer is that this prayer in 1 Timothy chapter two is a prayer of alls. It's a prayer of alls. If you like marking in your Bible, I want you to see them all and I want you to circle them and maybe even draw little lines connecting them. Let's just read through the eight verses again, and you will see how many alls there are. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, that's the word all, first of all, I urge that prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, let's stop right there. This is an implied all. He's using all these different words for prayer to wholly encompass prayer. He may as well have said all prayer. He doesn't, but so we won't count that one, but it's very implicit. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for who? For all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. And Now, we have the word here, every, but that's just the singular Greek one for all. That's another one for all, then always, in every way. Okay? This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, here it is again, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Here we are again. 
for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He goes on to say, I'm not telling the truth. I'm not lying. Go down to verse 8. I desire then that in, and here's another one, all in every place. And it's the singular version of all, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Did you see all those all's endeavors? It's throughout the whole command to pray. Now the thing I want us to notice, this is prayer first of all. Look at that first all, prayer first of all. Paul's saying that prayer is the highest priority in these instructions that he has for the church. If you want to glance backward a little bit, Paul just has told Timothy, his protege in the ministry, that he needs to fight the good warfare. He needs to fight the good fight of the pastor. And some have made shipwreck of their lives. Two in particular, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And Paul's grieving over these two. The war is waged hotly and the consequences are high. First of all, then pray. Paul's going to go on and give a lot of instructions on how we're to behave in the household of faith. But the first and foremost, the first in priority, the first in position, is this urging that he gives us to pray, to be people who pray. This is a command, not only first as a point of priority, but we're to be praying for all. We're to be praying for all. Look right here in the first verse. He says, I urge then that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. We're going to unpack this a little bit later. But Paul is arguing here that since it is our mission to win all, we pray for all. And when we pray for all, that means we also pray for kings and leaders. The reason we're praying for kings and leaders is that they can create an environment that makes it more or less helpful in the winning of all. Kings and leaders can frustrate our gospel purposes more than regular people. Yes, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, and there are many leaders who are enemies of the faith. But Paul is encouraging us to pray for everybody, but especially for kings and leaders, because they give us greater access to the everybody. Does that make sense? He's not telling us, pray for kings and leaders, period. He's saying, pray for everybody, and especially for kings and leaders, because they're the ones that can be more helpful in accomplishing the mission of getting the gospel to all. Okay. He says that we're to pray so that God's mission for all can extend to all. God, isn't, God is willing that all should be saved. And he's shown that by making his son a ransom. God is desirous for the whole world, so pray for the whole world. Pray for all men. And if you're looking for a starting point, pray for our leaders, pray for kings, so that the path to all people might be hastened. The last thing I'd like us to see is that this is this prayer of all is we're to 
we're all to pray. God is pleased by prayers springing from lives in all ways, that have been blessed in all ways, by all believers, and especially by men. Paul here is calling all the church to be a praying church. But it has to be admitted that he is calling out the men in particular to be prayers. Now, why do you think that is? Do you think God is calling out men specifically to be prayers because men in the first century were much more likely to pray than men in the 21st century? Do you think that's the case? No, I don't think so. I think men are far more similar to the first century compared to the 21st century than different. They're far more similar than different. They had the same anxieties, the same desire to work, the same desire to do. There is something in us all, all of us men, to do something that gets seen, that gets done, that gets things accomplished. We want to be busy. And all of those things are good when they're directed correctly to God's glory. Yet God is, God is calling specifically men to stop and cease from this busyness or the perception of busyness as we put it on for others and to quiet ourselves in prayer for that's where the real spiritual work is happening. And God knows that when men step out and lead in prayer, the church at large is sure to follow. And so God is commanding us all to pray, but he's commanding our men to lead all in their prayer. Now this is secondly, prayer with a purpose. This is prayer with a purpose. As we said before, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, is prayer of all types for all people. Look here at these words for prayer. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The word supplications is, what Paul is doing is sort of isolating all the different words for prayer that Christians use. The word supplication is a, a generic word for prayer, but it's, this, it's, it's, not, it's not prayer in general. It's the act of offering prayer requests. If you have a, a thing that you want from, say, your spouse, you're hoping that your spouse will make a certain dinner this week. You say to your spouse, you say, hey, I really like it when you make this meal. Could, could, that, could you do that? And maybe, you're, maybe it's the wife asking the husband for his special food or vice versa. That's a supplication. It's asking for something in particular. And so Paul is saying, I'm asking for prayer for particular prayers. Be praying particular things. And also, he gives this word prayers. That's just the general word for prayer. It can mean any type of prayer. He goes on to say intercessions. And this is a more specific word for prayer. It's the idea of a person going as an in-between 
to broker a deal. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, the United States was absolutely dependent for winter heat on coal. There was a huge strike, a coal strike, among the laborers in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. It shut down coal production the nation over. The unions wouldn't work. The bosses shut them out. There was violence between the two parties. And innocent people in Massachusetts and Vermont and Virginia and Ohio and Michigan were cold. And they couldn't get their hands on coal because there was none being made. Finally, the leader of the labor union rented a house in Washington, D.C., and down the street, the representative of the coal mine ownership rented a house down the street. They wouldn't meet in the same room together. But the eminent figure of J.P. Morgan, who you know him as J.P. Morgan and Chase, J.P. Morgan, a tycoon, a billionaire, walked back and forth on cold winter nights telling these folks what the new terms were, and then he would walk back and tell these folks knew what the terms were. And he went back and forth several hours until a deal was struck and coal began to get produced. J.P. Morgan was interceding for these two parties. This is the idea. We see the needs that other people have, and we take them to the Lord. We're bringing supplications to the Lord on behalf of these other needy people. Perhaps even in your Bible reading, the Lord will give you a word that you can take to the person that you've been praying for. And Paul demands that these sort of intercessions, these go-betweens, be taking place for all men at all times. And then, of course, we're to be making these supplications, these petitions, these prayers with the spirit of thanksgiving. Finding some sort of thanks to say for what God has given us. Now, we'll get to this in just a moment, but are there governmental leaders that we have a hard time respecting? Well, of course. But we might not respect him or her, but we sure do respect the God that put them there. And it's in that spirit of thanksgiving that we intercede and make supplications and prayers and ask for certain things in the accomplishment of our mission. Now, that brings us to our next point. This is prayer that's driving toward a purpose. Okay? I want you to look in your translations because you might want to somehow note this. This is a very important part of Paul's argument. He says, I want us to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And then it says, that we may lead. That we may lead. That is the only purpose statement in this prayer. We are praying for kings, for people who are in high positions. We're praying, in fact, for all people. And don't feel bad about this with Christians at the center. 
with our lives at the center. Now, we're going to qualify this in just a minute, but let's follow Paul's logic. That we may lead. This is the purpose. He wants us to be able to do something. He wants us to be able to live out our lives in a certain way. Now, does he, how, do, how does he want those lives to be lived out? Well, he also gives a result. Keep reading. It says that we may lead a good and quiet, a dignified life in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Okay, so let's follow this logic. Paul is saying, be praying for all people, and especially for kings and those in high position, so that we may lead a life that results in universal salvation. Pray that we would have lives such that others would get saved. Because that's God's desire. You see Paul's logic there. He's not praying that we would have quiet, independent, happy, healthy lives apart from the world. He's saying you will bump up against the world in your missionary endeavors. And I'm praying that you'd be able to lead, you need to be praying that you'd be able to lead your life in such a way that more and more people would come to the knowledge of the truth. That more and more people would submit to God's desire to see them be saved. Paul says that he wants these outcomes. He wants us to be praying for that we'd be able to lead this life and that we would be able to see people get saved because certain conditions are put in place. Okay? He says, I want you to pray that you would be able to lead a quiet life. Now let's read these conditions. He says, I want you to lead a quiet life, verse 3, that you may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay? Paul says that is what will promote salvation the world over. Is a life that's peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified. What are these words? What do they mean? Well, Peaceful and quiet means essentially freedom from governmental interference or any other hindering persecution. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for freedom. I'm praying that you won't be hindered at all by any governmental official. That there would be no statewide pushing away of the gospel, statewide silencing. There's a misconception here that I've heard Christians quote almost as an excuse for reclusive behavior, overly reclusive behavior. That the goal of a Christian, you know, they, they, they make it their life goals to move out into the countryside and build big hedges and live safely tucked away and get to town only as often as they need to and rub up against as few people as they possibly can fathom, and that this is the sort of quiet and peaceful life that God is talking about. And I want you to know that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying this. He's saying, I want you to live a quiet and peaceful life that is godly and dignified. 
Now he's saying godly because he's about to tell us that God pursues people. That God wants all people to be saved. And God was the chief victim of people. He had to give his son as a ransom for those very people. God is by no means impassive and withdrawn and reclusive and unaffected. He's chiefly and primarily affected. To be godly means to want to interact and rub shoulders with people and see people come to know the Lord. And so taken in combination, here's what Paul is praying. He's saying, I'm praying, I want you to pray for kings and rulers in high places because I want you to be able to live godly lives that are dignified. This word dignified means sober or grave or alert. I want... I want you to cultivate a spirit of evangelism, the same spirit that God has, where you have this compulsion and eagerness and desire to see all people be saved. And when you do that, you're going to be thrust out into the city. You're going to be thrust out into the community. You're going to start rubbing shoulders, and you're going to tell people what they don't necessarily want to hear. Your worldview will clash with other worldviews because yours is an exclusive one. And when you do that, that friction is going to create heat. People won't like it. Government officials will be motivated to silence you. And I'm praying, and you need to pray, for these people in high places that they would not be able to silence you, that they would not be able to hinder you, that you would be free from interference to play out this eager, godly, sober interaction of what God has done for these people. This is what Paul is commanding us to pray for. And this is what Paul himself was praying for. Praying for a purpose. Praying that God's worldwide purpose would be accomplished individually through us. That our godliness and our sincerity would cause us to get out into the community And we would be praying for the continued staying power of those liberties that allow that gospel to run forward with strength. Now for all all our societies, for all our nation's warts, we have extreme liberty and freedom to do just this. And any hindrance that we have at present is generally our own hindrances. I don't, I'm not being doomsday. I'm just saying we don't know how long that will last. It could last the rest of our lives. It could last the rest of our children's lives. It might not last that long. But God has given us a dispensation of openness and freedom and liberty that compel us to take advantage of it and keep praying for its continuance.
There's a third component to this prayer that I want to highlight for us today. This is a prayer of great significance. Paul says, I want you praying this way. I want you praying for all people. I want you praying for government officials that you'll be able to have this evangelistic heart of God free of government interference that sees the word expand through the ministry that you have with others. I want people to know that there's one God and one Savior, that there's one mediator. I want people to know my heart to save them. And when you do that, I want you to know this. God says, Paul says, it is pleasing, it is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior for us to pray this way. It's good and pleasing. Paul is borrowing from the language of the Old Testament. You guys remember when you're doing your through the Bible reading and it says that the Israelites offered a sacrifice and God said, that's a good sacrifice. Or when he says that incense was burned or that when the flesh of an animal was burned, it rose as a, as a sweet-smelling savor. It was an aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. Paul is saying, we don't have a religion anymore that's temple-based, that's ceremony-based. It's actually our prayers and our worship that appeal to God and rise to Him much the same way Old Testament temple worship did. Paul is making our sacrifices that of prayer and that of praise and that of requests rather than the sort of material things that we read about in the Old Testament. These sorts of prayers please God. Number two, this is prayer that shares the missional heart of God. Read this statement in verse four. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires all people, all people. God isn't stiff-arming anybody. God isn't keeping anybody out. Nor does God want to just pluck people out of the ocean of their sin and drop them anonymously into a lifeboat. God, God wants them to come to a knowledge. This word knowledge is the type of knowledge that we would say that Friends have, wives and husbands have, family members. It's a deep personal relationship. God doesn't want simply to save people. He wants to save them and know them and be their God and they be his people and enter a knowing relationship with him. God has this missional heart for all people. And if we doubt, if we doubt God's heart in that, he fills it out for us in verse 7. He says, for this, I'm sorry, verse 6, he says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Romans 5.8 says it this way, for God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How do you know that God loves you? How would a sinner know that God is reaching out to them? 
God says, look no farther than the cross. Look no farther than my son being put up as a ransom for you. God is the one taking the first steps toward us. God is the one who's desiring that we get saved. God is the one who's drawing us into a knowledge of himself. And God is reassuring us here that he's demonstrated his goodwill and he's taken all the necessary steps to draw us into relationship with him. In other words, the gospel, that what we're talking about is the gospel, and it is the power of God unto salvation. And when we begin praying, like we're instructed to pray in 1 Timothy 2, we're not only doing something that greatly pleases the Lord, we're doing something that echoes the gospel, which is the nearest and dearest thing to God's heart. God wants to bless God wants to save. And when we pray this way, he's satisfied by it. Now let's get into a few prayer applications. Prayer applications. Let's cover just three misunderstandings of this passage that we need to avoid. And I'll cover these briefly because I want to talk about how we should pray rather than how we shouldn't. 1 Timothy 2, 1-8 through is not a prayer for secluded retreat into our independent affairs. Okay? It's not a prayer when we say that we would be able to live a quiet and peaceable life. This is not a prayer that we would be able to withdraw from society unto our own secluded affairs. And some of us are a little more introverted and some of us are a little more extroverted. I find it interesting that typically introverts marry extroverts and vice versa, you know what I'm saying? So it, usually one, one spouse is a little more outgoing than the other, and they, they balance each other out a little bit. My wife teases me because I'm, I'm definitely the extrovert of the pair, and um, we'll go somewhere, especially on vacation, and she'll say, now, now honey, as we're, as we're leaving, now, honey, um, um, you don't have to talk to everybody you see. <laughs> And they'll say, oh, you're right. <laughs> so, but this is not a prayer for seclusion. It's not a prayer of grim obligation toward leaders we don't respect. I've heard it said this way many times. Oh, we need to remember to pray for our leaders. And it usually comes on two occasions, which I'll mention next. The first occasion is that the leaders that we don't respect just did something we don't like. And so we say, oh, well, remember to pray for them and we lead a quiet and healthy life. No, no. There's more than that. And this is not a prayer to be used only in election years. Okay. This is a prayer for, for all times. Because it's so much more. This is not a prayer for getting the right leaders into office. It's a prayer that's so much more than that. It's that the leaders who are already in office would allow us to live out godliness, which is going to interact with people. Okay. Now, let's do a couple prayer applications. This is prayer for all people to come to know the truth of God's passion for them. God, for God so loved the world 
For God so loved the world. And the world has, in many ways, associated Christianity with hate and Christianity with judgment. And if the world only knew how willing God was to forgive and how willing God is to overlook and how loving God is to draw us into relationships. And when we get angry and frustrated with the affairs of our world, we simply reinforce these bad notions that Christianity is political or that Christianity is angry or hateful. The love of God in Christ Jesus ought to flow through us and through our words to where people recognize that that is what's motivating us. And that's what's behind our words. And then if they reject God's message, they realize they're rejecting a message of love, a message of compassion, a message message of zeal. We have to take the rod out of the world's hands, as it were, with our actions and words. This is prayer for the social enablement to pursue God's saving purposes. We need to pray that the laws of our land would remain as such so that we can be free and open. We need to pray that God would open currently closed countries so that Christians can get in there and speak freely. We need to pray for nations like North Korea or for China or for Iraq or for many African nations that are held in Muslim grips. There are so many different nations where the gospel can't be freely proclaimed and if people did so, it would be under pain of death. We need to pray for the leaders of those nations that they would begin to open up policies so that the word would move forward in those places. We need to pray for the continuance of our own opportunities and then take advantage of them so that the need for it is always front and center on our hearts and we're able to keep praying that with great meaning and fervor. Now, very quickly, I realize, of course, that it's a holiday weekend. And all of us have, um, have things that we're hoping to do with the family and so forth. But the first Sunday night of every month, we meet as a body for a prayer meeting called Upreach. If you're new to us, we take our prayer meeting, upreach, from this passage, that men pray lifting holy hands, upreaching, holy hands, lifting up. And you have an opportunity to come and pray passages like this with us and to obey this command to be praying this way. And I hope you'll come. I hope you'll be praying this for our body this month. We'll be praying this for Fellowship Bible Church this month as we seek to labor with one another in prayer.